You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Holy hell do we have an episode today. It has been a trip since we last had a little one-sided conversation. In the sage and immortal words of the great Dave March audio, it's all happening. Uh, first up, the show has joined the Sound Talent Podcast Network. I want to thank them for having me, and I'm stoked to see where it goes. The plan is we're going to sort out some ads and such, maybe do a little leveling up. We've got some very cool plans for the coming months. On a personal note, I had surgery on Monday. I'm totally fine and recovering at home. I want to shout out and thank the team at Pennsylvania Hospital for taking incredible care of me. I'm excited to bounce back better than ever. And what a way to do that. Then with today's guest, Chris Gethard. I have been a fan of Chris since a friend brought me to his comedy set at the Fest many years ago. Chris is a comedian, author, actor, and former host of The Chris Gethard Show. He's the host of the Beautiful Anonymous podcast. He's been on a gazillion awesome TV shows and movies, and it was truly an honor to have him on the podcast. Today we talk a bit about his new special, Half My Life, which is as much of a tour documentary as it is a stand-up special, where he revisits some of his favorite venues in Philly and Asbury Park and Baltimore and places like the Auto Bar and Good Good Comedy Club. Needless to say, it made me very nostalgic for tour, and I cannot fucking wait to get back out in August. Go watch it. You can check out Half My Life on Amazon Prime and Apple TV. You're savvy. You'll find it. It is out now. And here we are, my conversation with Chris Gethard. All right. Chris, thank you so very much for joining me. I'm uh, super excited about this. I've been looking forward to this since, uh, since we, we had it on the books there. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. It's a joy. And as someone currently quarantining in Canada, uh, <laughs> an excuse to talk to any human it's appreciated, let alone for something like this. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. I'm glad I could uh, be a part of it. So I wanted to, I can't wait to talk to you about the special, which I am a huge fan of. It made me want to go back on tour so very badly and reminded me of so many times that we spent in those, in those very same venues. But there's one question I always like to ask everybody, and that's about um, their kind of urban legends that happened around them while they were growing up. I like to try to find the parallels that go across it. But I was actually, I found out something about a job that you used to have, and I'm astounded. You used to work for Weird New Jersey? I did. I worked there full-time for about four years, and then um, got my first job in comedy, so I, I, I left kind of short notice. And luckily, I mean, Mark Moran from Weird New Jersey, I, I've said it, I've, I've told him that there was a stretch in my life where he was kind of like a second dad to me in some ways. I mean, my own dad was great, but he really huge, like beyond mentor. And uh, he took me back in and forgave me for the short notice, notice leave. And <laughs> I wound up writing uh, Weird New York and I co-wrote uh, Weird US and 
and a, a bunch of other of their books and, and ghost wrote for a whole bunch of them too. So that was a huge part of my life. I've always said if, if I got that job when I was 25 instead of when I was 19, I probably never would have left. It was, it was the best job I ever had. And, uh, unfortunately I was like still a very driven and hungry young man who wanted to see if I had what it took in comedy and uh, I still sometimes wonder if that was the right choice. That job was the best. And having something stable would be awful nice. As as you know, I still feel from the special. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess for so anybody listening who doesn't know what Weird New Jersey is, it was basically like a, a zine um, or you know a chronicling of all the kind of local urban legends and ghost stories and stuff. And it, what got me into it was definitely from Weird Pennsylvania. I'm from Pennsylvania. And I think that came out in like maybe 2003 or something, and then just diving right in and being so excited about it. That's awesome. Where in Pennsylvania are you from? Uh, I grew up in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Very nice. Yeah, there was a, I feel like there was a bunch of stuff in that book out that way. Oh, yeah. There's some. There's like the Suskin Screamer on Suskin Road. Like each, each neighborhood in and around Scranton had their own uh, different haunted street, and I think a couple of them definitely made yeah. it into the book. And I feel like one of the commonalities of North Jersey and um, – the, an entire stretch of Pennsylvania that I, I would say Scranton's probably proud of is like you got all these cities in Jersey that have had some big ups and some tough times and then the suburbs that surround them. And then that mix, I feel like, creates a lot of teenagers who go out and break into abandoned buildings and kind of want to scare themselves and prove their toughness. And I always felt a little bit of a kindred spirit to... uh Oh yeah, that's that's such a, a great point about growing up uh, in that in the northeast area like that. Like Scranton was northeastern Pennsylvania, right above the Poconos. So every time we would go visit the Poconos, everybody was from New Jersey when we you know would go yeah. visit there. I used to go there as a kid, and one of my very very good friends, um, who people if people liked my TV show, they would know him. Mur- my buddy Murph Meyer, he's from uh, he's from just outside of Wilkesbury. Oh, no and- kidding. Yeah, and that's I think that's I think I finally learned how to pronounce it right. I always mix it up. Is it Wilkes? I used to say Wilkes Bar, but I think it's Wilkes Barre, right? It's it's Wilkes Barre. If, if you're from Wilkes Barre, yeah. you pronounce it Wilkes Barre. Once in a while, you'll get someone uh, who who I don't know went to college outside of Wilkes Barre, came back and started pronouncing it Wilkes Barra, and that's uh-huh. just not uh-huh. not right. Yeah. And he explained it to me of like, it's a city where there's like uh, some of the suburbs are like still pretty affluent, and then the city itself has like strong traditions but tough times and there's maybe some drugs that have come in and people keeping their chins up and kind of reminds me a lot of like the jersey suburbs and the relations to places like patterson and newark and camden and yeah yeah, absolutely not the same not the same life but definitely uh Definitely makes sense that we all distract ourselves with ghost stories. For oh, sure. totally. Especially with a place like Wilkes-Barre and Scranton, which are kind of like sister cities in a way. They're yeah. on either side of a valley that run. There's a bunch of small cities that run up the valley. And we call them, you know, either up the line or down the line, depending on where you live. But both of them exist on what are abandoned mines. So the yeah. mine system runs through the entire thing. And there were several disasters. There was a <laughs> section of Sorry South Scranton. Sorry to laugh. But... <laughs> I mean, yeah, well, it lines up with the, with the ghost stories and everything and there's actually yeah. a section of south Grand that was on fire like centralia pennsylvania oh, for a really yeah long time. yeah i helped write about that for for weird us which i think showed up in the weird pennsylvania book that is that and i th- i think maybe has centralia been like corrected or totally abandoned now but that that for years was 
one of the big things we'd always hear about at the weird New Jersey offices. And, and oh, it's yeah. just astounding. There's something maybe like six people who still live there. So yeah. they, they, they haven't, you know, their house hasn't melted or whatever yet, but it's yeah. a, for those who don't know, Centralia, Pennsylvania is a, a, a full city that just the mines underneath it caught on fire and it just melted and they just evacuated yeah. everyone. The shorthand is it's the city that's on fire that's been on yeah. fire for decades and, <laughs> It will continue to burn for for decades. Yeah, the city that's constantly burning. While there's some truth to that, it's also like, first of all, such a weird look at like industry and how it just kind of eats everything in its path. And then also human resilience, like the small handful of people that insist on still living there, even though it's um, 100% certain that it's toxic in a way that is truly bad for them. a fascinating, oh, yeah. fascinating place. Yeah, it's super. It's almost like uh, you know, you could run a parallel to like the end of the 20th century for it. You know, it was a big booming place. They're like, oh, we have anthracite coal, the best coal. Let's spend all this money and build these giant churches and 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 other buildings. And then 20 years later, they just have to abandon it. And then yeah, the people hang out there. Yeah. You know, they based and, the, the the video game Silent Hill is partially based off of Centralia, Pennsylvania. Makes sense. And do do Scranton and Wilkes-Barre share a minor league baseball team? Am I remembering that right? That's correct. There's a, a AAA baseball team. The uh, uh, was the Scranton Wilkes-Barre Red Barons, which was the Philadelphia Eagle. Or, sorry, the Philadelphia Phillies AAA team forever. And then the the biggest turncoat backstabbing event of Northeastern Pennsylvania that became the Yankees AAA team. So right now they're called the Rail Riders. Oh, they didn't even keep the name. That's, no. that's an aggressive move. Yeah, that was Murph well, they tried told, the Scranton Wilkes Barre Yankees. This story that I loved, that I thought was such a romantic notion of what I knew, you know, of the place he described. He said there was this guy that was kind of a local hero named Greg Legg. Do you know Greg Legg? Oh, my God. The name is super familiar. So, but I don't know exactly. So, Wilkes Barre is probably about a half hour away from Scranton where we grew up. So, there's a the whole. Uh, kind of a disconnect. So I wasn't wasn't close enough to catch that one. But what's well, Greg, the, you got the story? He, Greg Legg was this guy, and I've looked him up since. Who he got <laughs> to the majors really briefly, kind of went in and out a couple times on these like small contracts. I don't even know if he like played full seasons always with the majors, but he floated at AAA like he was right there for so long. And then he kind of became like the Bull Durham-esque, like he's the older guy who kind of breaks in the guys in AAA who are on their way up. And It's like the sergeant. And, and Murph always described him as having this kind of like frustrating life where he almost made it and sort of did, but not quite. And then he trained the people for bigger success. And Murph always painted him as like the most on-target Scranton Wilkes-Barre <laughs> hero you could find of like... of. The area was built to not love the guys who moved on, but the guy who couldn't quite. He always painted that as like, that's everything that was good and bad about his hometown yeah that's that's kind of perfect that makes a lot of sense it's you know it's funny actually uh had seen something that you had done and that was the documentary uh, that you were you worked at that water park that like disastrous north jersey water park i didn't i didn't work there. oh sorry sorry oh no it's okay Uh, yeah action park i i went a few times and um yeah in the 80s and early 90s it hit a fever pitch where that place was notorious in the in the New York tri-state area and especially in North Jersey it was kind of like this like weird legend myth place and it was a known thing that like if you had a chance to go you sort of had to uh to you know 
if you wanted to survive in the in the new northern jersey toughness of the 80s and 90s it was like you better go if you can and uh we all went there and a lot of people got injured and we always laughed about that but then it, it has a really dark side because a bunch of people died and it was just a documentary about it on hbo max i was in it i was really shocked that it really spread far and wide and people were really fascinated and I think a lot of it ties into just like, first of all, the ludicrousness of that place. But also I think there's a lot of people raised back then who are like, oh yeah, like why didn't adults care at all about our actual safety growing up? Why? Totally. That, that's uh, that's what reminded me of the the AAA stadium was because I'd, I'd worked there uh, as a teenager and they basically just took a bunch of 15 and 16 year olds and put them in charge of you know, 14 to 15 year olds. And there was just all kinds of chaos that ensued. And it just kind of remembered the uh, recreational place that was right next to it was very similar. They had to close down the Alpine slide that was there at Montage Mountain because uh, snakes were sunbathing on it. And somebody came flying down and got bit. But I just harkened back to thinking about how 16 and they put me in charge of the biggest food stand in uh, Lackawanna County Stadium. And a kid took a ladle and dipped it in the fryer and was like, check this out. And he threw it on the grill, which then exploded into a giant fire which then he grabbed a hose sprayed it with that spattered the grease fire everywhere and meanwhile you know half the people in the front were drunk and it was just completely insane and thinking about that existing now for a bunch of 16 year olds it just doesn't seem like it would it would fit very well no and and to be clear to anybody who's because it's i don't know your age but it sounds like we are of at least in the same age and yeah i'm 34 yeah oh so i'm 41 so you're 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 down there and um i'm Cause I, I'm I kind of straddle the line of Gen X and Millennial. I think you'd probably be solid Millennial, right? Yeah, I think I, I caught the ass end of like teachers smacking kids around and stuff. I think that was very uh, like the, an entire childhood with no cell phone <laughs> until I was like 22. You know, the sense I get that that probably um, probably lasted a little longer in Scranton Wilkes. But you're probably <laughs> probably one of the outliers hanging on to that vibe. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I think I'm, so. I, I both like it makes me giggle that that was our youth. And I also am very, very thankful that my son will hopefully not grow up where like intentionally starting a grease fire is fun. Yeah, I I agree. I think we have moved on from that. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah. I think, I think we've, that's, that's gone these days. Uh, but yeah, so kind of a non sequitur, but to, to go into the special, which I enjoyed so much, uh, it's, Basically, you going to a bunch of uh, you know smaller venues. A lot of them are punk rock venues that we've played before, uh, so it was super cool to see that, and it made me extremely nostalgic for touring. Um, and my love—I don't want to give too much away of like you know, of course, don't want to talk about any of the jokes or anything. But I, I really liked that there were so many elements of the traveling to it that we could talk about. Uh, and one of them, the uh, there's an issue with electricity, and it reminded me of all of the times when we were first starting to play those venues where you roll into a complete wild card situation where things like that just happen over and over again um i'm so i have to say to hear this from a musician let alone somebody you know who who plays in a band that's meant so much to that scene um i i gotta say it's a scene that's always kind of taken me in as a comedian outlier and it, it means a lot to me that you um, that you identify with it and felt like the touring stuff was on target. It really, really does. Really, <laughs> it absolutely, does. absolutely was. Um, I, I can't imagine. Hold on. Oh, if you pardon me, my quarantine lunch is here. Here Thank it is. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm back. Apologies. Feel free to leave that in if you want me to look like a dickhead. <laughs> I, 
<laughs> I can laugh about it. <laughs> but yeah, I hope the musicians, I, I hope musicians like it, especially the ones from the, the scene that's taken me in. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, the, the auto bar, um, definitely one of my favorite places to it's play. We actually have something coming up. It's not announced, but we, we will be playing there uh, sometime soon in the future as like a, uh, a small show to play in Baltimore that I can't fucking wait for. I, I feel like of all of the places that you went to on this and most of the places that I've been in the country, that place has one of the most quintessential uh, rock and roll backstages of any place. In, it's in, the in best. The world. It's, it's, <laughs> I've said a number of times, it's my favorite venue to play in the entire country. Oh, no shit. That's awesome. I don't know why it's, um, it was really kind of a game changer for me because you know, comedy, there's so many stages, there's comedy clubs and there's theaters that the bigger acts aspire to. And there's been a handful of comedians that have gone into music venues. And it's, I think for a lot of people, it's maybe viewed as like an intermediary step between like small touring shows. And if you get that theater point, but I did the auto bar and something about that room itself about the crowd that it attracted. It, it was like perfectly able to accommodate some of like my old public access show fans who are of the punk vibe, but also like some of my older fans now who who just kind of enjoy jokes about me raising my son. It <laughs> it felt welcoming to both. Like you said, it has that weird backstage upstairs and I've had I've performed there three times now. Every show felt magical. I'm going back for a fourth time in the fall and it, I have such allegiance to that place. And it it really sort of showed me of like these music venues are not an intermediary step for me. In fact, they are the goal for me in the home. And, you know, some of this is rationalization, but I'm like, I would rather play a venue the size of the auto bar and sell it out than play someplace a little bigger and soulless that could fit more people where maybe I sell it out and make a lot more money or maybe I get just like more people in there and it's not a total sellout, but I still make more money. But I'm like, I'd rather pack out the auto bar have a show that feels electric and and find the other venues like that all over the country so not only do i love the auto bar but i credit them a lot with kind of um you know as an artist you're there's constant this pressure of like you have to get bigger the goal is to get bigger the goal is to sell more tickets the goal is to attract more audience and i think that's just very um you know i'm not the most anarchist person in our world but I think that is very capitalism driven and I'd rather have the experience myself and give the crowd the experience that feels like the best experience. I'm, I'm, I'm lucky to be able to say that because I've made some money off my TV show and stuff, but my priorities have really been, I think, locked in place and shows like the auto bar are, are a big part of why. You know, I'm so glad that you say that. There's definitely um, a parallel for us that I wanted to uh, ask you about after hearing you say that. The margin, the measure of success, like how you measure your success, you know, framed by the, the for lack of a better term to name it, the capitalist notion of more, more, more. Um, it's hard to reckon with, especially for us as a band. We're like, okay, well, now we can play a 2,000 cap room. We, we can play a 3,000 cap room in certain places. Where does it end? What is good enough? Like, do you have to continue to push to get paid more? Like you said, we can play a, um, and we do get to make this decision a lot. Sometimes we don't make the decision because we have to pay, you know, ourselves and our crew and everything. But you look at a venue that you would much rather sell out than the uh, venues that 
are kind of sterile. There are a lot of the newer music venues, which I know that they'll be um, lived in for decades if they get to the point. Like at one point, Auto Bar, I'm sure, was really you know nice and sleek on the inside. Um, <laughs> but trying to figure out what is enough is it, it can become kind of difficult. Uh, try to like readjust your framing of it because five years ago or six years ago, we could look at some of the venues that we were playing right now and be like holy shit a band is we're, we're in a band we're playing that venue you know we sold out that venue and now we look at it and it become cynical or jaded very quickly and i was wondering how you kind of navigate those notions it's really hard right like one of the saddest things is when you go man i'm playing a show now that if if when i first picked up a microphone or in, in your case you know first picked up an instrument you look there you go if I was told that I'd be able to play a venue with this many people and we're making them all happy, there's 3,000 people here. And then you have those nights where sometimes you step back afterwards and you go, you know what? Like, I don't want to put words in your mouth. For me, it's jokes. So I'll, I'll just make the analogy. I'll use your language while saying these are experiences I've had where I go, you know, I've, I've told these jokes a hundred times before or you've played these songs a hundred times before and you're sitting there going... Halfway through that one joke, I was still saying it, and then I started remembering, oh, wait, I forgot to, you know, I, for, I was supposed to do this thing at home, and I forgot to order <laughs> that thing, and I got to tell my wife that I forgot to order And I'm, like, actually in my head going, this venue doesn't feel right, and there's not as much electricity here, and I have forgotten how special this is, and if you told me when I set out I would have this opportunity, I'd never think I would be taking it for granted or getting distracted, and... It's that's a sad moment, you know, and uh, yeah, I really try to fight against it. And some of it's out of my hands because any artists, you have ups, you have downs, right? Absolutely. I mean, you can make the argument that you can't have the ups without the downs. Absolutely. And and I'll be honest, like twenty sixteen, I had my TV show on cable, my podcast, Beautiful Anonymous, exploded. I had my HBO special in 2017. I got a book deal off of that. I had these this couple of years where it was just like, oh my God, you know, oh my God. Now, after the TV show got canceled, that book that came out, it did not sell well. It bombed. And then it's it's been really hard for me to find my footing after the TV show because I used to be very hip and cool. And now I'm 41 years old and... and uh, <laughs> I don't know if you get to be like a 41-year-old white guy who's like, I don't know that you get to be hip and cool forever. And that's a fact of life. And I take a step back and I'll be like full disclosure, um, like 2017 with all that stuff going on, I'm in 2021. I'm making one-sixth of what I made back then. That's a scary thing. Right, especially in what we do, where it's not you know, there's no salary. It's uh, no salary. Yeah. Like I'm lucky, at least with acting jobs, that I can like earn health insurance through unions. So that's nice. You know, that's a thing most artists don't have. I lost it during the pandemic for the first time when I have a two year old. I'm like, oh my god, so scared. Why did I decide to be an artist? But, um, you know, when I was doing the math on that money, I'm sitting there panicking, 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 and it it really did dawn on me. One sixth of what I made in 2017 is still a respectable living as an artist and way beyond what I ever thought I would have made before 2016. So if, yeah. if 2016 and 2017 just never happened, 
I would be so thrilled with my life right now. So who am I to not be thrilled with my life right now? And if I can remember the ups and downs and I can remember, you know, this idea you always need to make more than you made last year, I feel like that's left over from the 50s. Reagan brought it back in the 80s. And, you know, as someone, I'm not the most punk guy in there. I get a lot of credit as a punk comedian. I'm like wearing a J. Crew t shirt right now. Like, <laughs> but there is still a part of me as the punk thing that goes, well, you know what? Like, that just like mindless chase that the only determinant of self worth is making more money than you made last year. I go, that's probably why so many people from those 50s and 80s generations like dropped dead of fucking heart attacks or, you know, drank too much because the stress was just immeasurable and I just totally. do not want to buy into that so I have to I have to remind myself of that some of that I think is having a good head on my shoulders and doing soul searching and in a way that's very cheesy just going like what would Ian Mackay say to me like what would he say <laughs> if he knew that these were my stresses he'd be disappointed he also wouldn't care but like I have those cheesy thoughts still and some of it's rationalizing because I have to or I'll mentally crumble because you have to kind of say, how can I be okay? But I also do think there's truth in it of, I am lucky to have money. I, 2016 yeah. and 2017 allowed me to buy a house that my kid gets to grow up in. And if that, if I never get those years again, and those are what those years gave me, my kid gets to go to a better school than I did. Like, it's pretty cool. You know? Totally. It's pretty and cool. And that's amazing. And I, I think there's also a behavioral aspect of it or like a, 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 you know, an economic aspect of chasing after it, especially when doing something like this that is, you know, gig based or like output based or whatever you want to call it, even if it's not a direct relationship. The idea is you spend so much time playing shows for no money, selling no records. In your case, I, I'm not exactly sure how comedians get paid when they go out and do and do shows and stuff like that. But you're so used to not having money and like chasing after the bit that you can that you not start to hoard it, but you start to chase after it. And it takes a while to adjust to be like, oh, well, I don't have to squirrel away as much as I can because I might have a dry spell of like six months. And I think anything shown, especially because of, uh, at least for us in 2021, where we, just like yourself, the, the, uh, in 2016, 2017, we were doing the best we've ever done in 2019. And then uh, 2020 came and we knocked down to not quite a six, but probably like, well, without government aid, it would have been less than that. But we were kind of just like, oh, shit. And the entire time we didn't have to scramble that hard and we've been home and that's been nice and i'm not sure if we'll be able to roll that into doing less touring but at least we've been able to reprioritize and i think that's definitely a silver lining i think so and and it's like you can i can i can ramble about punk as much as i want like can't pretend that it's nicer to have some disposable income than to not like there are like i said there's people who really live it there's people who live in squats and reject all of it i have great respect for it I'm not going to pretend that's me. Like, it is nice to kind of go, my sneakers are all jacked up and I don't have to, you know, I used to have to wear these for three more months than I'm wearing them now, but I can go get a decent pair of sneakers and I don't have yeah. to, I don't have to, I don't have to ride these things out till there's holes in them anymore because it's just, I live with a fucking roommate in Queens and it's better to just have that, yeah. you know, however much. Like, it is nice to be able to say, like, you know, my old TV is crapping out on me and I have the luxury of being able to go buy a new one and like not think too hard about it. It's nice. It's nice. But also if those things are stable and I feel like I'm providing for my family 
you know what else is weird is I, I don't know if anybody in the in the band has kids, but one, not yet. No. One of the things that's so eye opening for me with the I said to my dad after my son was born, there's like one more, you know, it's so it's so hard in so many ways, beautiful in, in way more. But I said to my dad, I go, you know, one thing that's bumming me out is like I was so old when I had my son. My dad was 27 when he had me. I was his second kid. And I go, you're now like on the tail end. You're like, you're retired. You can still travel if you want to. I'm like, when I'm doing the math, I go, man, when Cal graduates college, I'm going to be like 62. <laughs> I'm like, I don't really get the end of the life. And he goes, well, or no, it was my mom. My mom yeah. goes, well, your father and I talk about how you went out and you made you made your money before the kids were born. Like your dad didn't make any money until you were about to graduate <laughs> high school. And like the amount of of stress we constantly had about money was scary. And I go, that's the job. Like my son that's never such an needs incredible to know point. if I made more this year than last year. Like yeah. he just needs to have a couple of toys at Christmas and some good friends in the neighborhood. And like any stress I have, it, it it's totally readjusted now to be like, well, my job is to just kind of ignore that stress as much as I can because I got this little guy who doesn't need it and he really makes me think about how little it matters, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Food on the table and I can buy stuff when I want it. And it's a beautiful hope, thing. Hopefully it raises back to a little closer to my peak year. Hopefully it doesn't get down to one-eighth or one-tenth. That would be nice. I'd love it if it <laughs> maybe stabilized around a quarter. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. But, I still uh, hearken that part of that idea of, you know, my parents did the same thing. They had, I'm one of, for oldest of four, they had me when they were 21, I think. Uh, and I was talking about, damn, I'm not going to, you know, we plan, my fiance and I plan to have kids. Um you know, relatively what? soon on the scale of, of everything. And I think about, I was like, yeah, but when we were in like second grade, they told us that life expectancy will keep going. And I'll probably be like 150, right? <laughs> How's that going to work? <laughs> Definitely not after these 20 years of, of playing in a touring uh, punk rock band, but we'll see. Oh, yeah. I, I bet. Yeah. A, a, a Scranton Bay, a, a bunch of Scranton based <laughs> punks. I don't know that you, I, I, th I think you guys. <laughs> Opt out. Yeah, it's just st that, stacked but, against a little uh, bit. It's, <laughs> I remember my aunt and uncle, I never knew this because my parents told me after my son was born, my parents told me that when they got married, um, between the two of them, they had a net worth of $400. Like it was, <laughs> it was check to check. I was like, what? Like even back then, even in the 70s, that's not enough. My mom's like, yeah. Like, yeah, even yeah. if that was like, Eight hundred dollars now, adjusted for inflation. It's like what? It's <laughs> just uh, uh, undoable. The scramble. My aunt and uncle, after my son was born, this blew my mind. They told me that when my parents started telling people they were going to have a second kid, that their family actually sat them down and kind of had like <laughs> not an intervention, but sat them down and was like, "Like, what are you guys? Like, what are you doing? Like this." You don't have <laughs> money. What are you doing? And, and, and I sit there, I'm going, that was me. That was me. My yeah. family intervened and questioned <laughs> if it was a good idea for me to exist. Like, Wait. I don't have to do it. Did your aunt and uncle frame it as their second child or did they say you? 
Did you just have the like re- realization? No, wait, that was me. I had that real. I mean, it was like a thing that I obviously knew, but it wasn't like they were saying like everyone debated whether you should be born. It was like they had your older brother. They were scrapping it out. We all like, you know, everybody lived in another thing, North Jersey, and I think your area have in common of like everybody lived in the same neighborhood you know like my parents i grew up across the street from the house my dad grew up in my grandparents are still there so it's like i think there was this thing like i look back now i go man any stress i have i made my i'm making less money than i made five years ago i go if my dad broke his ankle if my dad like slipped going on the steps and broke his ankle like my brother probably would have been living with my aunt and uncle. I probably would have been living with my grandparents until he got back on his feet. Like, I didn't know that back then. That's insane. That's completely insane. So, oh, I mean, I'm making one-sixth of the year when I had my TV show. Like, I am. <laughs> I got to yeah. let this. This is the money stress that I got to let go because I'm trained to do it. And I don't like that. I don't like that particular indoctrination. It's, it's, uh, it's really damaging. Yeah, I, it's the, the the worst. Um, I did want to ask you about. There's a my favorite part of your documentary slash special. Uh, there's a super beautiful part. I think it's the most relatable part um, as far as the crossover between being a, a touring musician and those kind of venues and and the way that you have shown it. Uh, you're driving into Detroit and you're almost having a bit of like a, a vocational existential moment where you say something along the lines of, um, "I think like I think I still love comedy." I think I like doing this, but my back hurts. Yeah. Uh, and I can't say how much that resonates with the type of internal dialogue and outward dialogue that we've had on tour millions of times. But then you immediately segue it into something that answers the question of like, why am I doing this? And I think it's it's just so beautiful. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, and you're not spoiling it, which I thank you for, but I go, it, then the show I did that night was, I was like, oh, that show was like awesome. And people were just jumping up on stage with me and I was letting it happen. I go, that's why I do, right. The actual thing of doing it is still so fun. Um, I'm so glad that rang true. And I have to tell you the confidence it gives me just like to thank you artist to artist, because that's the exact type of thing that I like doing that makes I think other comedians go like this guy is not funny like why do people like him (laughs) he doesn't make jokes he has all this like emo stuff and I think that there I've been so lucky that there's some people who dig me who maybe aren't comedy fans necessarily and hearing that you like that part I go oh right that's that's the type of thing that people with a different mindset do click with and it's why they've been so kind to me. And um, so I, I just, ego wise, I thank you. I'm glad yeah, you like that. Yeah, hell yeah. Part. My pleasure. I, uh, I actually wonder how you feel about that with the tradition of kind of what what we're doing. So I always re- think about the differences and the commonalities between. Um, I, mean, I am a comedy fan, not like a big comedy fan. I was fortunate enough. Uh, actually, funny, you play a good good. One time my fiance and I were walking down the street and some kid was like, hey, do you want to go to a comedy show tonight? And we were like, actually, yeah, what we were going to do just got canceled. We'll, we'll go. And ended up going to that theater to see some improv. I didn't know it existed. Uh, and we went to that theater and it was fucking awesome. It was so fun. Um, so, yeah, it was really cool that you did there. But when I first moved to Philly, a dear friend of mine was the bartender, uh, Curtis. He was the bartender on the second floor of a bar that was named after 
Edgar Allan Poe poem, The Raven. So it's called The Raven Lounge. And it's kind of a weird place in Center City that is on Sansom Street, way down in the high numbers. It's like just you, you wouldn't necessarily know it was there. But he was trying to figure out how to get people into the bar. And our neighbor at the time was this dude, Chris Cotton, who was like a comedian in Philly. And mm-hmm. he started an open mic night there. And then every I watched, like I would go every Saturday after my shift as a dishwasher and go watch these comedians perform. And it just grew and it grew and it grew and it grew. So I had this like little bit of a snippet into the life of uh, – uh, at least in Philly, what it was like to be in that kind of open mic comedy scene. It was super fascinating. And I always wondered, you know, uh, what it was like for you to come up and what it, it, some of the things were different because you're not starting any bands. Everybody was kind of on their own. So there was this, a little bit of an unspoken um, competition that existed. And it just, yeah, it was such a unique, unique scene to me. Yeah, it's, um, I love it. There's like a few things I want to respond to. I'll try not to ramble. It's like, sure. first of all, Good Good was amazing. It's such a tiny space, and um, they told me. I, I don't think I don't think they've publicly announced it yet, but they told me in the course of like promoting the special, they knew it was going to come up. It's I filmed at ten venues, three of them closed from COVID, and Good Damn. Good was sadly one of them, which is fuck. I think a huge loss because, like in the in the special, I did Sugar City in Buffalo, which um, is like a true DIY space in the traditional like music sense and they have a zine library and like community events. And that, you know, reminds me of some place I grew up with, let alone like being in New York, the 16 years I was Shea stadium and death by audio. You go, Oh yeah. Good. Good was like (laughs) more than any other space. I found a dedicated comedy space that was really like emulate, finding a way to be a comedy version of that. So I'm so sad it closed. And then I, I actually, fired my agents because I'm like good good's gone they set me up with a new Philly show I'm like usually I just do good good do a few shows a night because I love them they set me up at a club there and I find out after all the ticketing fees tickets are like 40 bucks I'm going <laughs> man I play good good for 8 bucks 10 bucks maybe 15 like I don't want to only perform for people who have 40 disposable dollars let alone if they're bringing a date and buying drinks like I don't want to, I don't, that's, I don't want to gouge my fans. So I switched agents. I have a whole new setup that I'm very proud of. That's going to allow me to avoid that. But, but Damn, anyway, uh, that's, that's fucking awesome. I just coming from our world, the idea of, you know, firing agents or just curating your own, uh, being able to dictate what you want to do. A lot of bands won't do it. And that's, that's pretty, that's intense. That's like a big deal. Yeah, it was. I mean, like they also like there were a few things that led up to it. Even the, <laughs> in the special, the venue. When you watch it, you go, "Oh, these are all cool like venues that have a certain shared sensibility." Except for this one in Richmond, and like that was the one show on the tour the agent set up, and it didn't sell. And I was like, I always thought Richmond was one of like the great punk towns, and then like the show is so weird and the promoter like he screwed me on money in the most like cartoonish way like i've never been screwed for money like that a promoter at a nice place screwed you for money (laughs) get out of here it was wild it was so wild and then my my buddy carmen who's in the special and he had a friend who was like a local comic at richmond who's like i don't know if this is gonna make because i was like sad i was like i had a meltdown on camera that was so sad we couldn't include it in the special (laughs) and my friend's buddy he goes dude i i gotta say like I don't know why they put you in that place. Like I can think of six venues off the top of my head in Richmond that you would have sold out. Like nobody even sure. knows that show happened there. I was like, yeah. that sucks. So that, that was bad. But I, I, I got these new agents who have such a good head on their shoulders. They really get me. And then they also allowed me to have 
a friend of mine who's um who books a lot of punk bands join the team and he's outside of their company and um he's actually you might know him he's uh, uh wired tour booking brian from nightbirds yeah uh, yeah brian gorson gorson yeah he, yeah, he's yeah great great guy and and um i'm certain a lot of the bands on his roster are like mutual you know our friends of yours and yeah that's and, incredible that's amazing that's uh just you know that's i've never heard of that before in our space of, of agent like giving uh you know an open allowing somebody else to book at a different type of venue or just like you know have that like punk rock kind of realm that you can that space that you can live in it's it's so cool it's really cool of them it speaks highly to them and then the basic deal is like they are they are setting up like my beautiful anonymous tapings and then stand-up shows in the like as companions to those and then brian is very selflessly like they'll go like okay like we you know like like i'm doing a tour that takes me um within range of Dayton and they hadn't booked Dayton and he's going, I got this record store in Dayton that puts on great shows in their back room. And I'm like, I'll jump out. I'll do that space. It'll be like smaller, more intimate, way more on target with like the culture side of it. And then I get to go do the big shows, kind of have my cake and eat it too. And I hope it's not a waste of his time is the main thing, but I go, it's, it's, it, it, it speaks highly to all of them to go like, let's get on board and try to build this in a way that fits. So, Absolutely, yeah, but any I, I feel like I dodged your question. It's no, it's okay. I asked like six questions in one. So it's, uh... <laughs> but it's it's like it's really cool that you were able to see that develop. And I've heard Chris's name a uh, number of times. And uh, my brother does comedy in Philly. And oh no shit, and, yeah. And I know it has like a very strong scene, but you can see it. Like there's the clubs where you go. You have to buy two drinks and. Buying potato skins and all that. And <laughs> there's also the shows that develop out of bars, and sometimes those can become very depressing environments. These sort of like open mics or booked open mics. Sometimes they grow into shows that are really healthy and strong. And starting out as a comedian, there is there's like there's always a sense of competition individually. It's on your shoulders. I've always been jealous of friends and bands. I've actually joked with friends in my bands about this, where I go, "What's worse, like?" Like sometimes we have people play for hotels and a lot of times you guys don't have that. And especially in the, like we get to that level a little sooner, but also like if your show eats shit, you can at least go out to the bar with each other. Like I have to go back to that <laughs> hotel room on the side of the highway, just think about it all night. Like, Oh yeah. And then, you know, you can go, I, I've been, I once went to an open mic that was so depressing that I've, never stopped laughing about it it crossed over from depressing <laughs> to me being like what's happening like um and you do a million of those and then you know you see the people who are better at it's, i think similar to music you see people who are really good at schmoozing where you go i know people who are as good as that person or better and, and they're not getting the attention they deserve and yeah all that stuff but the the, the really cool thing about comedy is like there's if you live in a city with a good scene and, and in, it's part of why I've stayed in New York is there's an almost limitless amount of shows you can find. Um, so you can keep just pounding away and getting better. And, and that's really nice is I, I can do six shows in a night and find out if a show, if a joke is good, especially as a New York comedian. And um, that I feel like 
that I balance against the musician life. I go, man, it scares me that you guys build a show. You you build a song on your own, and then at some point you have to play it for the first time, man. and it's as part of your show. And that's that's scary. I get to go do like if I wanted some of the jokes in this special. I've worked on for eight years before putting them down, and I just thousands of times before anybody needs to hear them. That is so interesting that you say that. That's uh, the next question that I was going to have for you. The next thing I was wanted to talk to you about was that when we write a song, we play it, you know, eight hundred to a thousand times, fifty different variations and incarnations of it before anyone hears it. So it gets to the point where we love it so much, or we are so confident in it that when we play it, we're like here's this song. Um, or oftentimes when we play it for the first time, someone has already heard a recording of it and uh, is becomes familiar with it. So that's why we like to uh, go on like a album supporting tour yes. a month after the album is out. Where I feel like, what I want to ask you about is I feel like you can't really get a the body language and the little tidbits of a joke down without actually doing it in front of people. And to me, that sounds like such a horrifying proposition to have to sharpen it as uh, you know in front of live audiences. It's funny. It goes both ways, right? Because I go, in my mind, I go, I get to go do it in in live a live audience environment and really make sure I get it right. And some of these shows, even even at my level of like, I've, I've done a lot of stuff. I'm like, even at my level, I get to, um, hold on one minute. Sure. Sorry, my headphones came out. Apologies to your editor. <laughs> no problem. Um, like even at my level, I've done some stuff and I feel like it's a blessing where I'm like, oh, I can just schedule a bunch of shows in friendly rooms, uh, go work it out, get it really good. And then when I take it on the road, I know it's good. And um, I, I feel like there's more pressure in me and, and going, we all think this is good in the room. <laughs> what if, you know, like that famous yeah. story of when Pinkerton came out and Rivers Cuomo was like, everyone's going to lose their minds. And then the reviews were like, this is garbage. And it like broke his mind forever, apparently. Like, <laughs> that I, that's really my point. fear. But then the thing I'm so jealous of, so jealous of, is what you just described. Because in comedy, the tradition is, okay, when you've done it on a special or you've put it out on an album, you never do it again. Like this special is out now. I've worked on that Gatorland joke and that bus joke for seven, eight years. Each of those. No shit. Now I need to rewrite a solid twenty minutes of material to replace that. That's got to be crushing. That's got to be a little bit depressing. I mean, you know, it's got to be a little bit depressing that you have to kind of let it let it just go away. In some ways, it's a blessing because I'm like I've spent eight years talking about an alligator themed. <laughs> park like i can let that go that's good but yeah it's scary i don't know if i'll write anything i like as much i don't know if i'll write anything that feels as reliable on the road whereas musicians not only can you play supporting your new album i'm like if worse comes to worse if a show is going bad or if you guys are like we need a new tour but we just hit those same cities Maybe we can go back a little sooner. Let's just play the greatest hits, man. Like you bust oh, yeah. out you can bust out a song from your first album and people are in a state of euphoria. Whereas if I did a joke that I did on my twenty twelve album, they'd be like, What the fuck are you doing? Like I, but I guess it's because once you know a punchline, <laughs> you're not gonna surprise them ever again. But sure. I'm so jealous. Oh yeah. When we have you, uh when we're if, trying a new song, we'll squish it between two of the fans' favorite songs and that way we can't course. can't fit. You put it in a position where if they need to just completely forget about the turd, you can just organize it that way. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I would love to be able to do that. If you guys are like, ah, last night's show was rough. We're going to switch out one of the new ones for a banger. 
<laughs> I am so jealous of that. Yeah, it's it's we're super easy for us, super lucky in that regard, and that also flows into a, a, a question I had for you, and that is how much goes into so you go on stage and it's not necessarily a persona in your case, it's not like a shtick. I mean, is what I mean. There's not like the guy who hit the shit with the sledgehammer or whatever. You're not like a ventriloquist. <laughs> Gallagher. Gallagher, that's it. And uh, we go up and we do somewhat like that. You know, the our shtick is that we just play songs. You know, we don't have like uh, we're not like the epoxies or some of those older bands that had like you know or the aquabats or something um but when we get on stage and we have to interface with the crowd or interact with the crowd and be ourselves all we have to do is all hit the same chord scream the name of the city that we're in and people will go wild so it's super easy there's not a lot of like uh work that has to go into like back and forthing with the crowd and i always felt like being a comedian and having to deal with people that are right in the room is such a naked thing and my question is after all that is do you have to focus on what you're doing with like your hands and your body language and like the way you lean forward and backward do you actually like study that i think when people hit a high level and i'm not at the highest level of this yet um i do every pause um when do i get louder when do i get quieter this is why I'm working on a joke for seven or eight years. I know the punchlines and I know it's going to hit, but I sit here, I go, can I squeeze a little bit more out of it? Um, if I get, let this part right before that punchline get a little slower pace. Like if I really, if they sense it's cold, can I squeeze a little more? Like they know a punchline's cut. How much can I tease them before I get to it? Like those are the experiments that become like a science lab in a really fun way. And, I um in 2014 I I toured all over the country. I opened for Mike Birbiglia. And, oh, very cool. Yeah, and I tell you, like I was, I had a career at that point. I'd done a bunch of stuff, but I knew I was like, get the ego out of the way. I'll learn so much from Mike. I hadn't been on the road all that much. I go, I'll learn a lot from Mike. So I got to just like, not, not have it in my head of like I've done enough. Why am I opening for somebody? It's like no, no, no. Go out and learn. And I would watch him do a 90 minute show every night. And I started to realize he's a little bit maniacal about it. I think he, if he ever heard this, he'd be giggling and admit it. Like (laughs) I started to realize I'm like, Mike, he will literally test. What if I move right on this line instead of left? Does that change things? Like what if I'm holding the mic in my left hand instead of my right hand? Like he's testing everything down to like an origami level. And I just don't have that in me. Um, and I wish I did. I wish I didn't, you know, take Adderall for focus <laughs> issues. Um, but yeah, I think I think there's some people who are, you know, I think some people whose whole vibe is like keep it very casual, very laid back, and that's its own thing. But Mike's one of those people where it's like, um, you know, like I think Dave Chappelle, he'll sit on stage and smoke cigarettes and stay on stage for four hours because he's allowed to do that. Now, that's cool. That's cool. Like, <laughs> and then I watch Mike on the opposite end um, where I go, oh, wow, he's testing. He will literally go, okay, I like to walk across the stage to create some like physical energy leading up to that punchline. Does it, what happens if I start in the middle of the sentence instead of the first word of the sentence? Like that to me is like masterful that's why he's able to do a show on broadway a comedy show yeah i was about to say it seems like a very theatrical approach and there's a lot of theater to it uh even if it's just you know your body that is creating the energies and and giving off the communication 
100%. And then, and then you got the people who are in that night. Like, I think John Mulaney's kind of like in that Birbiglia school as well. I'm not ex- as close with John, but I admired about him. And then I've never talked to him about this, but then you got a guy like Pete Holmes in the middle where I'm like, oh, he lets his shows get a little chaotic, but he also, he's in that middle ground of like, some of some of this is genuine chaos, and then some of this is he's so good at being a magician and making people feel like things are out of control when they're not. And I admire that greatly because I am someone, as you see in the special, I am someone who maybe has a little too much fun going, okay, you want to just get on stage and we'll wrestle? Like, <laughs> all right, let's oh, see yeah. what happens. And those are sometimes magical experiences, and then there are sometimes where people are just going, man, I... I did pay money to come see a show, dude. Like, <laughs> it doesn't always appeal to everyone to have that style, but I get a little manic and addicted to things falling apart. Oh, yeah, and there's a romance in that uh, chaos, I think, as well. There's some shows that we know we're going to play where yeah, we'll either get a little bit too loose beforehand or we'll let someone else come up and play with us, similar to what you're talking about, or we'll just take requests. And you, you, It is a fine line to walk between like how can we put on the greatest show and how can we try to create something that is extremely unique and just ride some kind of wave. But uh, yeah, sometimes it really doesn't work. <laughs> but you know what? You know what I really like about it and that I think we share and a lot of performing artists share, and it ties back to what we were saying before of like, that sad thing when you kind of forget the magic and you have to remind yourself where the thing I've been, I've been really, really working on this hard and I've, I've always done it, but I've been really thinking about it hard, switching agents, like I said, reprioritizing and with the pandemic taking it away where I go, I don't care how big the room is, it's about the people in it, it's not about me, you know? And sometimes switching things up or creating that chaos is about your boredom and that's when the crowd feels like their money and time's being wasted but if you're going i feel like we can take a big swing here and if it works they will never forget this evening of their lives well that's in service of the audience and that's great you know and like when you guys are playing three thousand person rooms one thing i I think i'm going to start talking about this on stage a lot because one thing that i keep obsessing over is i go you know if if they did a survey of every person in my audience, someone is having the worst day out of everyone in this room. Like Absolutely. Some, someone had the shittiest day today. And like you have 3,000 people in that room. Like there's that one person. There's that one person and they are having a really bad day. And you might give them the show that makes them forget about that for a while. They might have an hour or two in their life where they aren't having such a bad day. And that is that is still, it's a very cheesy thought. It's a little Hallmark card, but I go, it's a very intriguing, that's a very intriguing thought to me still. It's a very good motivation. Totally. Uh, that's the one thing uh, as kind of to throw it back to driving into Detroit and kind of figuring out what you want to do for us when we are experiencing this horrible situations or we've experienced all kinds of chaos we've been robbed we've had vehicles stolen we've had you know uh horrible injuries all kinds of terrible things have happened and and you're like fuck this why am i doing this uh and then realize besides 
you know, getting the attention and getting paid and, and just playing songs and getting an excuse to, to get paid to play, you realize that you have an enormous influence, enormous positive influence on everybody who's there. And that the reason that they came was to feel good. And for some people, like you mentioned, it may have been the worst day of their life, it may have been the worst month of their life. Uh, mm-hmm. And it, you can really have a huge positive effect on it and just kind of then maybe hopefully you know this get a very hallmark card that'll have a chain reaction to the other people in their life and so on and so on and it, it feels good to think that you're uh part of that even if it's just like a loose community now let me ask you about the insecure side of this because i've been doing it now long enough and i bet you're on the verge of it too where you go like because i think about like my old public access show people still bring it up but i go man like we started on public access that was 10 years ago now and like i started that show two years before that I go wow and then sometimes I'll have people go even other comedians I've had other comedians who I really like who are like young bucks coming up and they'll come up to me and go oh like just want you to know like I I used to watch your public access show and it's like one of the reasons I felt like I could like try to do comedy I go that's the best I love hearing that and they'll go yeah it was like huge for me in seventh grade I found it when I was in seventh grade I go oh oh, oh no oh no Oh no! I'm like I'm so psyched. That's the whole point, right? That's the whole point. If I can get like yeah. a, a 14, 13, 14 year old kid to feel like maybe I can actually shake things up and not like I don't have to listen to like a college counselor telling me what you know what like eighteen years old pick your major and go with it. Like maybe there's more to it. Like that was the whole point. That's what I was going for. But exactly, it does make me insecure to hear it. Twenty twenty one. Oh my God! Yeah, this person who's on a TV show now loved me when they were in seventh grade. Like that's that's scary. It's so funny how that happens. There's so many bands that uh, come up, and you know we've seen massive bands in in like magazine interviews and stuff will list us as a as an influence of theirs. But yeah, I heard them in high school. You know, my my boyfriend listened to them, or my girlfriend, or something like that. And then you're like, wait, wait, wait! You were in high school, and now you are in you know Rolling Stone or whatever. This is insane. And definitely can can vibe on some of that. I feel like I was more like I was less insecure when we first started than I am now. All these years later, I was more sure of myself when we were playing in front of twenty people in a VFW uh, than I than I am now. Do you? I, I now because we were talking about oh I got I got Brian and the special shows the DIY venues. I fear that some of this for me is clearly just a midlife crisis. <laughs> well, go, well, the name of the special, I mean, is oh, half, double entendre. But. Half my life, yes. It's uh, very clearly, it might as well have just been called Midlife Parentheses Crisis. That actually arguably would have been a better title, and I wish I'd thought of it before <laughs> right now. Um, but there's a part of it, it's like, man, am I, going, am I going back to some of these places for the ethics, or am I going because I want to feel young again? There's There's parts of both. You just mentioned the VFW halls. Is there any part of you that does miss it? Like, do you? I, I, I have to imagine if you're selling a three thousand seat venues, like, hits a point where you can like hire some buddies to help carry your gear, and that's a huge day, and that's awesome. Oh yeah, yeah. Do we have ever- like six crew members now. It's wild, uh, and they're all people that we've known for for many years and came up with us um, when we were first starting out. And you and get they're- to give six friends jobs, and that's the best feeling. Oh yeah, it. it's the greatest thing in the world. We get to just roll around the. You know, we have days off. We all go- get the same hotel and it'll be in some like picturesque town somewhere and we all just fuck around all day it's it's the best thing ever and but do you, is there ever a party that misses it is there ever a party that goes like do you ever feel like man i maybe i was a you little know, locked in more 
there's I, a part of me that misses um, how simple it was. Yeah, uh, and yeah. there's a part of me that misses, you know, how much better my body was able to handle it all. But uh, I got to over the years, we've been extremely fortunate. And back then, when we were first starting. A lot of us weren't in a very good place uh, mentally. We didn't take care of ourselves. We had all kinds of issues that weren't dealt with. And I and I can truly say, uh, and I think I'm extremely fortunate that we've been able to grow over these years. And even though that was simpler, and there is a, a big nostalgia for it, I really am much more fulfilled and happier to be where I am now than we than when we were back then a lot less pain now yeah i cool. i guess it is also it's it's a luxury for me to say i can ex, i can get excited and opt back into this and feel yeah. the energy and cuz part of it too like i was saying I really wanted to go conquer those comedy clubs. I wanted to be like, like I once played a, I, a couple of years, maybe two, three years ago, I played a comedy club that was on the third floor of a mall in Syracuse across from Margaritaville next to a Dave and Buster's. And like there was, there was a part of me that was like, one of the things in comedy that's extraordinarily annoying. And there's a sense of this in music, but it's very, very profound. It's people going, are you a real comedian? Who's a real comedian? Uh, yeah. And I just wanted to, I, I'm like, I come from the alt scene. I come from a scene that was more experimental. I come from an improv background, which a lot of people just mock improv these days. Um, and and I think there is maybe some comedians out there who like to, you know, come from a little bit more of a macho corner of the scene who like to, like I was joking before, this is why people say I'm emo because I want to talk about how my back heart hurts. In the middle of my <laughs> but I'm, I sit there, I go, I still have enough of a fighter in me that I go, no one's going to question if I'm a real comedian. I'm not. And if if that means I got to walk into their turf and do the mall across from the Margaritaville, I can do that. I can go there and I can kill there and I can be fine. Can you come to a DIY space with a zine library and crush? I don't know. Maybe you can. Maybe you can't. I know I can do both. So there's a part of me um, that that felt really good about going to do that. But now I feel like I'm taking a warm shower by getting back to the you know, the auto bars and the colony Woodstocks of the world, these great places that culturally I feel more close with. And I'm in a lucky place where I get to kind of bounce back and forth and define that for myself. Totally. And I think it's a, a beautiful thing that you get to do what you want in that regard and get to revisit that. And it's so, I, I gotta say again, as a, as a musician, it's such a wild and interesting, um, thing to be able to see how it parallels what we were doing and be like holy shit this guy's a comedian and is rolling through the same places that we rolled through doing the same exact thing and that's uh it's, it's really fucking cool that's awesome that's awesome and and it's it's funny too it's like i keep thinking about the growth you mentioned and i can't sell three thousand tickets it's uh it's le- I think that that is for a very upper tier of comedians. I, th- I think that's when you're hitting a stage where it's like you're a national name. And I've never, I haven't done stuff that was digestible enough to get there. That's on me. That's There's some self-sabotage there and also some just what I'm interested in. But I go, it is really nice that music is loud and music is takes over. And music, you. One of the things I'm jealous of is like, when when I am watching music, part of the goal is to let myself go and stop thinking. Comedy, you actually need to follow a premise and a punchline. You need to think hard. So, I sit there and go, what a nice thing that 
you I feel like probably bands are able to have audiences grow and have it still feel intimate in a way that I think comedy loses very quickly. I could feel that for sure, especially in some of the ways it's as a joke is fleeting and you know in the sense that you kind of put it out in this way but people don't want to hear the same thing over and over again music is fleeting in the sense that you don't have to pay attention to it and you can literally you know there's people who play in bands and musicians i know that are hired to sit and play in the background you know like they play classical piano or something like that there is a bit of like a, a fleeting um transience to it and i think that that kind of uh incorporates into that as well it's part of the mental space it puts you in i'm really it, it i've had a I, i'm very lucky to be buddies with jeff rosenstock and i admire him Hell yeah. even outside of being a friend i'm like I'm like, I really admire how he does things. Um, and he once told me, he's like, you should have been, you should have been a singer in a band. And I was like, I always wanted to. I was scared. Dude, you got, scared. The, you got the, you got the chop, like the charismatic chops for it. Uh, and the look, I mean, you could be playing in like a Ramones core band or any, any kind of punk rock band or pop punk I, band, you know? I've talked about, cause my wife is Hallie, um, how if people, a lot of, I think there's a lot of pop punk fans who really think fondly on the unlovables. And sure. I remember saying to her once, like, I wish I had been in a band. And she's like, <laughs> you know, you, you have enough friends. Like, you know, she was in the house band of my TV show, Mikey Erg was. Yes. She's like, she wasn't being arrogant. This is the shorthand for what she said because she's a humble person. But she basically was like, you know, like, if you want to do a Ramon score thing, me and Mikey could fart that out. In like, <laughs> like, we could write you enough Ramon score songs in like a week if you want That's just like saying. middle of the road Ramon score. That's not hard for anybody who's done pop punk. <laughs> like, yeah, maybe someday. That would be a dream. Oh my Talk God. about a midlife so crisis, sick. though. If I put out a punk album now, True, true. Like crisis. Yeah. <laughs> I had uh, one more thing I wanted to ask you about, if that's cool. So I wanted of to ask course. you about... Thanks, man. Yeah. Uh, so punk rock, there are people that, that age gracefully, and there are some that don't. Uh, I hope we could be a part of the former in that one. But I've noticed that our, our, our fans are, are generally moving along with us as we go, as we're getting older, and the things that we sing about, and the type of music that we're playing. And I know you mentioned earlier about making a bit of a transition between doing your show and doing uh, the stand-up that you're doing now, and writing. And uh, I want, have you found that your fans are kind of moving along with you as your perspective and your art is changing? And where do you see that kind of going? It's very, very funny. It's an incredibly astute question. And it's one that I've, since my TV show got canceled, I launched a couple of things where I go, cool, this is the next thing for the gang. Because I always had a very intimate cult fan base. And then a lot of them I realized, oh, when the Gethard show got canceled, that was an end of a chapter in their life. And they're not coming with me. And that's fair, but it's scary for me. And you know what I've realized is... Being born in 1980, there's there's actual cultural studies. They call people my age exennials. It's like a few years surrounding 1980 where it's like when I was a kid, there literally wasn't the internet. Like it was a military and, and academic thing that we didn't <laughs> even know existed, you know? Um, people older than me didn't necessarily even have computers in their classrooms. They, they call us the Oregon Trail we were in the exact window where we were playing Oregon Trail in elementary school and then kids younger than us, obviously, different life. Someone five years older than me had a completely different childhood than someone five years younger than me. And part of what I am trying to wrap my head around is like the old public access show. 
I was like, I was like the old guy who got it to a bunch of people younger than me. High school and college kids went, oh, this guy gets why we're pissed. And this show is showing that off. But the people older than me were like, "Uh, it kind of feels like early MTV, we remember. But they weren't as locked in, generally. Now, Beautiful Anonymous hits. It turns into a thing that's like much more contemplative. I got so lucky and that thing blew up. Hundreds of thousands of people listened to it in its early days and still a very, very healthy audience. We do the surveys for the demographics. A lot of them are um, are like female, like like moms in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. I'm going, no shit. That's yeah, wonderful. Most of, and I'm going weird. I got two different fan bases here. And I've, I've kind of reconciled with the fact if I was smart enough to get them all in one place, I'd be a lot less stressed. But right now I go, <laughs> my career is always going to go through these phases where I'm going to make some stuff and people younger than me are going to wake up from it. And then I'm going to lose them because I'm making stuff that reflects my growth and the people older than me are going to go, yeah, 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 yeah. And then I bet that the people older than me, I'm going to lose them again at some point. And then the kids who grew up with me are going to come back and go, just like we sometimes, right? Like you stop listening to a band for a bunch of years and then you go, oh, wait, I loved this in high school and I kind of love it again. You know, like. Absolutely. I think I'm that guy. I think I'm going to be sort it was funny because when they stopped coming with me, my wife, she said it the best. And thank God I'm married to someone who's like more punk than I am who's able to explain it. <laughs> she goes, who was your favorite band when you were a sophomore in high school? Because your fans were, a lot of them were sophomores in high school and they loved that show. I go, less than Jake. <laughs> she goes, what were you saying about less than Jake in, let's say like your mid to late 20s. I go, everybody was making fun of Scott and I was too. I can't. I can't lie. <laughs> she goes, what do you think about less than Jake now? I go, honestly, sometimes I put on their stuff. I sing along to every word. It's good. I feel stupid that I ever doubted it because I still know that ev- I still know every word to where the hell is Mike Sinkovic. I still know every word to Johnny Quest <laughs> things for sell ads. I like it. It makes me feel good. She goes, that's what's going to happen. They're going to roll their eyes at you. And a lot of these kids used to call the show and get on live and we recorded it and it's on YouTube and they don't want to think about what it was like when they like had braces, man. Like they don't want to think about what it was like, like to be who they were before they ever had their first kiss. Like they're, they're still figuring out who they are beyond that. And then when they figure it out, they'll remember that you used to mean something to them. I go, wow, you're smart. Damn. That is incredibly wise. What a, what a beautiful way to put it. Yeah, it's uh, it's weird. It's weird to get old when you used to be cool. It really is, man. <laughs> it is. Yeah, those words are becoming uh, more and more true to me every day that goes by. But you get to play your old albums, and I don't. Damn right, every <laughs> every time. But uh, Chris, thank you so very much for joining me. Uh, I wish you the best of luck, and I can't wait uh, for everybody to check out your special. Uh, it, I have to tell you, this felt really good to have this conversation and I I mean that I mean that well thank you very very much I'm always horrible at ending the podcast I never know exactly how to segue it out if you have any MVD tips from uh, 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 
Well, and luckily mine is on a timer. The, the premise, <laughs> I'll talk to you for one hour, and then it cuts yeah. off. So I was smart on that. <laughs> exactly. And there it was, a conversation with Chris Gethard. You can check out his new special, Half My Life, on Amazon Prime, Apple TV, all those kind of places like that. It is fantastic, and I can't recommend it enough. Thanks to Sound Talent Media for having me on their network. Thanks to Beth Ann Downey for producing the episode. Intro song is Not the Only One by The Chisel. I want to thank them immensely for letting me use that as uh, the intro song for the podcast. And outro music by Queen Jesus. You can check him out at queenjesus.bandcamp.com. You guys have a beautiful weekend. Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal the Man, to Fat Mike from NoFX, and Ian Mackay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, Peer Pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of That One Time on Tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream and, in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion, and more. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com.